My, my, my. You may not like that video, but that speaks to where our culture is, doesn't it? Speaks where some of you have been this week, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Rules and definitions. I want to start off with that phrase, rules and definitions. Rules always have definitions according to where you are. My wife goes crazy when we go to the beach with our grandchildren because as they walk in the door, Papa's words are always this, there are rules to be followed while you're here. And you know what the rules are? And they know them now. They say, there are no rules. (laughs) Drives her crazy, but I mean it. I just want them to have a great time, and we do. And then they know the rules at Papa's house. When they come to Papa Nana's house, they can state it. They do it every time they walk in the door. Whatever is Papa's is mine. And God bless them. They all, when I visit their homes, will say, Papa, whatever I have is yours too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Especially the granddaughter says that, of course. Rules have definitions, though, don't they? It's defined as to where one is and uh, how it, one perceives the situation. I want to help some of you with some other definitions today. I'm going to help you. As we say in South Carolina, sometimes I'm a hippie, and, and so just stay tuned. Now, some of you have made fun of me over the years because I am not the sports fanatic that you are, and that's probably true. Now, I probably know more about sports than you. some of you think, less than some of you hope. No, I'm not the fanatic some of you crazies are, and so that's why I thought I'd spend just a couple of minutes helping you understand some definitions. Now, my favorite sport is football. I don't mind telling you that. I used to enjoy professional football. I used to really enjoy the Dallas Cowboys. Now I know there's only one or two people in here that would agree with me on that, but that's the way it is. If you don't like it, get over it. But deal with it and get over it. That's right, Jake. So, but anyway, I thought I'd help you understand what some of these terms really mean. So you will be educated. What is an extra point? This is rhetorical, so don't answer. I'll help you. Re- extra points when that's what you receive when you tell the preacher his sermon was too short. Face mask. That's smiling and saying everything is fine when you know it's not. You thought it meant something else, didn't you? Forward motion, that's what we hope will happen at the invitation. Some of you are so slow. Draft choice, draft choice, that's the decision to sit close to an air conditioning vent. Draw play, that's what restless children do during a long sermon. Halfback, well that's what the praise team sees. Or Anyway, never mind. Illegal use of hands, that's when you clap at the wrong time, you big dummy. Yep, thank you John, I knew that was coming. Illegal motion. In the backfield. That's when you leave before the invitation. (laughs) In the pocket. That's when some of you keep what belongs to God in your pocket. Quarterback. You know what quarterback means? That's what some of you cheap wads want when the plate is passed. (laughs) Incomplete pass. That's when we used to hand out the... Uh, plates and the deacons would drop one of them. That's an incomplete pass. 
interference, talking during the prelude and the opening video. And Kevin, you were right. No one knew what it was. Okay, running backs, those who make repeated trips to the restroom. Two-minute warning when the chairman of the deacon stands back there and does this. Okay, halftime, that's the period between Sunday school and worship. That's easy. Bench warmer, you know what that means, don't you? Fill in the blanks. You don't do nothing. Sudden death, that's what happens to the attention span of the congregation if the preacher goes too long. End run, getting out of church quick without speaking to anybody. And you know what the blitz is, don't you? Rushing to the restaurant after the service is over, trying to beat all the rest of those churches. Used to say trying to beat the Methodists, but there's not many of them around anymore, so you have to fill in the blank with some other denomination. Trying to meet, beat those non-denominationals. You can say that with great certainty these days. But anyway, I thought you'd want to know some of those definitions. Uh, the, Bi- the Bible The dictionary says a definition is a commonly accepted description of reality. A commonly accepted definition or description of reality is a definition. So now we pivot the conversation to what do you think people, how do you think people define Christians? How do people out in the society define Christians? Now let me just tell you real quickly. They have definite ideas about what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. And often those definitions lack almost as much as some of your definitions lack because they often deal with what a person wears or doesn't wear, how a person dresses or doesn't dress, what they sing or don't sing. All of those definitions will fail at some point in time. But the society, believe me, our culture has definite ideas about what really makes a Christian a Christian. And they will tell you real quickly, well, that's not what I thought a Christian did. That's not the way I thought a Christian acted. And they have very, very clear and will verbalize those statements to you about what they think a Christian is or should be. Paul in the last chapter of the book of Philippians, tells us very clearly what ought to make up the marks of a Christian. And as we read these few first verses this morning, I want you to ask yourself what I'm asking myself. Do these marks, are they found in my life? Are these qualities found in me? Now, I teach Sunday school most every Sunday. And I taught last Sunday. And I was in a Sunday school class, and a Sunday school member argued me down in the class about some of these very characteristics. I'm not going to tell you who it was. She's hiding her face right now. I'm not going to tell you who it was. But we were talking about some of these similar marks of a Christian. And I said, in all honesty, I'm really embarrassed today because I don't have any of these. She said I did. I said I didn't. And we got into a throwdown right there in the Sunday school class. She said, well, I think you do. She was pretty honest about it. And I finally said, we agreed. Well, if these ever come out of me, it's only because of the Lord. 
she said, well, that's true with me. I said, no, that's not true. You were born with like Anyway, we, we enjoyed a little bit of scintillating repartee. But do these things that Paul talks about, are they evident in your life? Are they evident in my life? I have to ask myself the question. And in all honesty, I often say, Lord, I'm, I'm not seeing this like I should. So what does Paul say should define the believer, the follower of Christ, the Christ follower, the, the God follower? What should mark us? Are we so marked? Look at verses 1 through 7 of Philippians chapter 4. Now we finished the whole gospel of John. It took me almost two years. And now we're almost to finish Philippians. What will we do next? I don't know. But I'm praying about it and I'm working on it. So that, and, and thank you. I know some of you will give suggestions. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. Do you understand that? Don't want to hear it. So then, I do care what you say. I just don't care a whole lot. But I am taking it to the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want? What do you want me to say? Because that's what matters, isn't it? Not what I want you to hear, not what you want to hear. But today, I believe the Lord wants you to hear, if I'll shut up talking, and read Philippians 4, 1 through 7. So then, in this way, my dearly loved brothers... My joy and crown stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Help them. And then those verses where he really begins to meddle, and our wonderful lady and man on the video read these verses. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. Then one of the most beautiful verses in all Scripture is verse 7. And let the peace of God, which transcends, surpasses understanding, every thought, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let the peace of God, which surpasses every understanding, guard your heart and your mind. In Christ Jesus. Wow. First of all, we see that love is the mark of the Christian. Love is a mark of the Christian. Paul talks about it here very powerfully. He talks about a situation, and first of all, I would say he is encouraging our love to be inclusive, to include everyone, right? Isn't it interesting? In his first three verses, he includes the quarrelsome Euodia and Syntyche along with the helpful Clement. There were some people who were not getting along in church. Can you imagine that? Really? Oh, who was that I talking to this week? And we were talking about another. Anytime an organization has people in it, you're going to have struggles. 
just the way it is. doesn't matter if it's government, education, doesn't matter if it's church. If it's got people in it, it's always going to have challenges. Well, he had some challenges in the Philippian church. And he said, please help these women get along. But I love them. He called them dearly beloved. He called them my joy and my crown. But you see, we're often selective in our love, aren't we? He wanted us to be inclusive, but we're often selective in our love. Wouldn't you agree with me today it's easier to love some people than it is other people? I mean, it really is. Uh, Some of you are much more lovable than others of you are. But Paul said, I love all of you. Even them women that are arguing and the helpful ones too. I love you all. We're often selective in our love, but God tells us that our love ought to be inclusive. Loving those that are not only easy to love, but loving those that are not easy to love. And we would even have to say, do we even love the lost people like we should? Oh, we criticize lost people for acting lost. What do you expect lost people to act like? Really? But our love ought to be inclusive. If we're to love like God, we're going to love people and not look at the color of their skin, not look at the dress they have on, not look at the culture in which they find themselves, but to love them as Jesus loved them, people for whom he died. We ought to see them that way. It ought to be an inclusive love. It's a concerned love. Paul expressed love for everyone. And we've already pointed out, even those that were hard and not uh, so hard to love. But he called them my joy and my crowd. And even though he was separated from them, you could sense his love just flowing forth for them. My joy and my crown stand firm, dear friends, beloved, he calls them. It's a concern, love. I wonder if we're marked with love. How and why is it so hard to say I love you to some people? Some of you say it almost as an afterthought. But when you say it, do you mean it? And why is it hard to say that to someone? I love you. Oh, we're afraid they might take it wrong. We're afraid they might take it the wrong way. But I love you is a powerful phrase, isn't it? It ought to be a concerned love. It ought to be an inclusive love. And we ought to care that the church is marked by love. And let it be said that Pebble Creek is a loving church. It's got to be said that way. Oh, God, forgive us when it has not been. But our culture needs to define Christianity by how they love each other and how they love us. We don't do this here, but I remember when I went to another church in this town years ago in another lifetime. I went knocking on doors. A lot of the people were poor. Some of them were African American. Some of them Latino. And I remember saying, what do you think about that big church up yonder at Taylor's? And most of them kindly would say, well, that's a church not for us. What do you mean? Well, it's just not for us. It's for rich white people. Well, that wasn't true, but that was the perception. And it took years to change that perception. And I believe now, if you ask a lot of those same folk, they would say, they care about me. 
They love me. And we had to get out into the community and do that which it took to take the love of Christ out to people. And we started doing things. And we'll do those things here and are doing some already. We would do things to reach out to people. I remember, for example, we did single mother's oil change. Remember that? Some of you were helping in that. We did it for years and years. Once a quarter, single mothers from all over would come in and have their car fixed. And we'd hand them a card and say, we want to show you the love of God in a practical way. No donations allowed or accepted. They couldn't understand that. Couldn't believe it. We'd have phone calls during the week. You really won't take any donation? Nope. Because people in 21st century believe you're after their money. So anything we do at Pebble Creek, we're not charging for it. Let me just tell you. We did things like we had a young adult class at Christmas time went to the local Kmart at the time and said, can we do free gift wrapping? Oh yeah, okay. But we gave them the same card, no donations allowed or accepted. They couldn't believe it, couldn't understand it. Didn't understand it because they had never seen a church do that. Youth would do free car washes. Oh, no, we're not, we don't have a bucket for donations. No donations allowed or accepted. We want to show you the love of God in a practical way. I want this church to be known as the church that helps other people and helps other churches. Oh, by the way, uh, we were planning a church. We wanted to plan a mission church in another area of the upstate. And there was a Southern Baptist church about a mile from where we wanted to plant this church. So I called the pastor to tell him we were not after his members. He happened to be a former member of our church. He said, well, why don't you help us first before you plant a new church? I said, we'll help you. What do you want to help with? He said, we're sitting here in the middle of the fastest growing area of Greer, and we don't know how to reach people. Will you train us how? I said, are you serious? He said, yeah. I said, we'll help you. One of the things we did was, you remember, this is crazy. It's called a gas buy-down. Now, I'm really going off the scripture here, but this is talking about love. When gas was $4 a gallon, you remember those days? We would go to a local gas station. And say, we want to hire your station for five hours on Saturday, the busiest time of the week. And we want you to sell more gas than you've ever sold. And we want you to knock $2 or a dollar off a gallon. We'll pay you at the end of the day what you, what you need to make up. But you're going to sell more gas than you've ever sold. And we want it down. So we had signs out, gas buy down. Get gas for a dollar, two dollars off a gallon. So we'd done that two or three times. So he, he said, can you help us do one of those? Well, there was a big gas station right down below their church house. And so I said, yeah, we'll help you. So you got to get your people out. Your deacons have to get out and wash windows. Your youth have to wash cars. Blah, blah. We had people pumping gas for them. They, some of the people would run out of gas. They'd be lined up for a mile out trying to get gas like last week in the upstate, right? Oh, let me tell you something. Oh, but it said, such and such Baptist church, gas buy down. But guess who paid for it? Our church paid for it. Nobody ever knew that. I went to some ugly deacons and I said, give me, let's get some money going here. And they paid for it. But it went to help this other church. Why? Because we want to help that church reach its community and to change the perception. We're a church that loves you. So we're going to be a church that loves not only its members, but loves the community.
mark my word. Love ought to be a mark of your life. Is my love a mark of my life? Am I a loving person? God help me because often I'm not. The second mark is joy. Well, that's the one that seems to upset the young couple in the video, right? Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. I mean, he says it pretty clearly. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. A.T. Robertson, when he wrote his great commentary on Philippians, called it Paul's joy in Christ. Sam Shoemaker, a great old preacher, said, Joy is the surest mark of the believer. Am I marked by joy? Quickly, I want you to know it's an incessant joy. Say that out loud with me. It is an incessant joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. So he is telling us we're to rejoice, yes, in the good times, and to be happy and rejoice even in the difficult times. Do you hear that last phrase in the video? A lot easier said than done. Yes, it is. But as you deepen in your walk in the Lord, you come to the point where you learn I can rejoice because there's something to be happy about even in the difficult times of my life. I know who I belong to. I know where I belong. I can rejoice in something even in the most difficult time of life. Rejoice in the Lord. It ought to be an incessant joy. It ought to also be an independent joy. Say that out loud with me. It is an independent joy. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in the Lord. It ought to be independent of circumstance. It ought to be something that doesn't depend on how much money you make or don't make. It ought to be something that depends on your relationship in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. The Christian understanding of happiness does not come by circumstance. It does not come by seeking and getting. It comes by serving it comes by joy that is down deep. One writer said, joy is the echo of God's life in the life of every true believer. I like that. Are you filled with joy? Is it an incessant joy? Is it an independent joy? Well, I will tell you it comes at a price. It comes at the price of relinquishing anxiety. It comes at the price of submitting our needs in earnest, taking everything to the Father to the throne of God. Lord, I bring it all to you. Does joy mark your life? You've heard me say it before. If it's true, you better, somebody better tell your face. I mean, really? Is it that bad? Joy ought to be one of the surest marks of our life. Love, joy, quickly. Let's move on quickly. Gentleness. It's defined in a lot of different ways. I think King James calls it forbearance. Some versions call it gentleness. Some versions call it sweet gentleness. It ought to be the mark of the Christian it defines someone who's willing to give up that which is really, truly their right. But they give it up 
in order to minister to someone else. The word gentleness means someone who's able to forget self and willingly yields personal claim and personal right. It is not a 21st century virtue. Because our culture says you demand what is yours and you stand your ground and you get it. No matter what the cost. But the Bible says the mark of a Christian ought to be forbearance, gentleness, sweet reasonableness, willing to bear injury and resist demanding one's own way, to yield rather than to insist on the full measure of one's rights, to suffer wrong rather than to do wrong. Did you hear me? It means to suffer wrong rather than to do wrong. I said for years in another sermon, there are some things that may be your right but it's not the right thing to do. Sweet, reasonable, forbearance is a Christian spirit and it means to be so conspicuous a feature of their character that it would be known to all people with whom they come in contact. Many, many years ago, a man named William McKinley was elected governor of Ohio. And as he was forming his cabinet, Josh, he mentioned a certain man who had opposed him bitterly. And one of his friends said, Why would you even consider that man for this post when he did everything possible to keep you from being elected governor of the state of Ohio? McKinley said, Because he's the best man for the job. Sounds a little bit like Abraham Lincoln, doesn't it? Who in his cabinet of rivals, that's why his autobiography by Doris Kearns Goodman Great, one of the greatest books I've ever read, calls her the book about Lincoln, Team of Rivals. Then McKinley said, if we spend all our time getting even, we'll never get ahead. Good word. He understood forbearance. He understood gentleness. He understood this mark of a Christian that is hard to define. But why should we do this? Why should that mark even be present? Well, he says, because everything the Christian does, he does with the understanding that the Lord is near. Isn't that what the Bible says? The Lord is near. The latter part of verse 5. We should act with gentleness and forbearance because Jesus is right beside us and inside us. You act that way because you represent him. And what you want doesn't really matter. It's hard for us to hear. Two last things quickly. Moving on. Peace is the mark of the Christian. Peace is the mark of the Christian. Nowhere in the Bible is the peace that we're supposed to have so forcefully commanded. What does he say in verse 6 and 7? Some of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Don't worry about anything. Easier said than done. I grew up in a house. My mama was the queen of worry. If she didn't have anything to worry about, she would find something and make it up to worry about. But Paul said, don't worry about anything. I mean, is worry really going to help in the first place? 
I mean, Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't, don't worry about it. Most of the things in your life, there's nothing you can do about it. Kind of reminds me of what old Mark Twain said about the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. A lot of things we can talk about, but nothing we can do about a lot of things. Some things we can't. But he says, stop worrying. Don't worry about anything, but in some things, no, in everything, through prayer and supplication, prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then look at verse 7. And the peace of God which transcends understanding. I've seen God's people be at peace when it made no sense. I've seen God's people be at peace in the midst of the most difficult of life circumstance. It doesn't make sense. It transcends understanding. And that's the peace of God. Not to be an anxiety that would cripple us, but we're to meet life with prayer and praise. And when there is prayer and praise, there is a promise of the peace of God. And the peace of God will do what? Guard your hearts and your minds. Well, guard your heart and your mind. That's a military term, by the way, that there's a guard standing at the door. Nobody getting through that door. When you walk with the Lord, He can give you a peace that transcends understanding. And He will guard your heart and your mind. Where are the battles fought, really? They're fought in the mind and in the heart. Let Him guard your heart and your mind. God's peace will stand guard over you. How often does God's peace calm our lives? Take it all to Him. And then quickly and last, gratitude. He says, let your requests be made known with what? Thanksgiving. Gratitude. Are you grateful? Are you grateful? Did you hear that poor, distraught mother say, I'm getting ready to fix supper that no one will like? And certainly no one will appreciate. We've all been there, haven't we? What do we really deserve is the question we ought to be asking. And then we answer that honestly. We go, oh my goodness, I've got a lot for which I should be grateful. How do you mark a Christian? Paul says, through love, joy, gentleness, peace, and gratitude. So we must end by asking ourselves the questions, can others see Jesus in us? Can others see the marks of a believer in us? And if not, then we must ask ourselves why? And what do we need to do to get right before Him so that others can see these defining characteristics as the marks of my life? And I'll be honest with you, I'm not there yet. I think most people probably would say other things about me before they might mention some of these things. I want them to be the predominant marks of my life, don't you? Definitions and rules. Well, God's given us the best definition of way we should be. Pray with me, please. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your word. God, help us to be a church that is marked by these characteristics, but help us be people who are marked by these characteristics. Lord, we love you. 
We profess that love to you right now. And I pray for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this place. That we would deal with you right now, individually, according to the power of your word. Jesus, help us to surrender it all to you. Even now, in Jesus' name, amen.